Mark My Words shares Mark Homer's contrarian views on investing, business, finance, economics, and all things money. Mark interviews the world's most successful business, finance, and money experts, as well as imparting his knowledge in a factual, direct, and no-nonsense manner. Welcome to Mark My Words, and here is your host, Mark Homer. I've got something special for you today. This episode is a recording from a live event that I did a few months ago, and I think it's going to be really, really useful for you. This recording was from the world's longest speech marathon, which we did at Progressive. We raised over £150,000 for Sue Ryder, and it was a great achievement by everybody. So on with the episode. I hope you enjoy it and you get great value. Okay, so companies, shares, buying shares. Should we look at different companies on the market and do analysis on them and work out what might be good and what, what might not be good? Is that a, a valuable thing to do? Yeah, for sure. So if we're buying, if we're, if we're looking at analyzing shares, generally speaking, there are some key metrics which a clever investor or a good investor would look at in order to decide whether they were going to buy shares in a company. So the first thing, and, 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 and this, a lot of this would come from what Warren Buffett would do, uh, and it's something that I've adopted. I've, I've read a lot of his books. I've look, looked at a lot of inve- his investing principles. And I try and follow, use that as a kind of, almost like a roadmap for myself. But I've modified it a bit. I've used it, worked out what works for me, what doesn't, and changed it for my purposes. So the first thing you look at with companies is you need good management. So you know they need to be honest, they need to maximize cash flow and, and dividends, not just seeking scale, because lots of companies will just seek to, to, get, to get bigger, or the management will, and retain the profit, i.e. they need to pay dividends out. So they need a history of paying dividends. You need to have companies with good competitive advantage. Okay, so you might have Gillette, they could be a good example. Gillette are a company that make razor blades. Why have they got a good com- competitive advantage? It's the ultimate repetitive style business. You need to keep going back to them for what? Razor blades, I know all about that. Why do you have to keep going back to Gillette as well? Because you bought that really expensive razor with all the lights and the motors and the fusion and the, you know, the extra blades and flashing lights. Yes. Actually, I've tried it because, you know, I, I, kind of contrarian thinking. I, I, I've looked at that product and I've looked at other products as well. I've looked at the kind of Wilkinson one and the others and I thought, you know what, those blades are so much cheaper. I'm going give, to give that razor a go. And they, they're just never as good. So it, they, they have got a seriously good kind of design team as well. So they've got a great competitive advantage. They've got a moat around them, haven't they? People can't really attack them, or it's very difficult to. So if you've got a business which you really understand, something probably a business that you use quite a lot. So you use their products, and you've really got an understanding of how they operate. They're the best kind of businesses usually to invest in, the ones you've got some personal knowledge of. At the moment, I'd be looking at businesses like that, but I also kind of want to know that they've had some sort of 
short to medium term issue which I feel like isn't going to continue right into the future. So what might be a, an example of that? Say that again, sorry? People go electric. Oh, they might have electric razors, yeah. But in terms of beards become fashionable, well, they, they sort of did, didn't they? But maybe not enough. Um, I'm thinking more in terms of companies, yeah? CEO like Steve Jobs might die, yeah. The second that happened, I thought, you know, Apple's just not got to be a good thing to buy. Shares have done all right since, haven't they? I suspect in the long term, it won't be a good thing. I suspect Apple's one of those things that it's done so well, so much value's been added, just to stay at that share price, they need the exponential growth on the iPhone and on the... Um, on the Apple TV and all those other products, and I, I just think the whole thing's probably unsustainable. Yeah, they've got to bring so many new products out and have so much growth just to maintain the share price. And uh, I'd, maybe he'll do it, you know, but they're just not as innovative as they were. They used to have innovations all the time. When that iPhone came out, it was amazing, but it's just got a bit better each time, hasn't it? Got a bit quicker and. Apple TV came out, I thought it was amazing. They've not really changed it since, have they? Since Steve Jobs has gone, it, it seems like the innovation's really slowed down. I was just say the iPhone 7 has now got, going to have a new uh, headset, which is going to be a completely different jack. Yes, they're good at that, aren't they? The iPhone 7's going to have a new jack. I've noticed that. I've stopped buying headsets. <laughs> yeah. So that'll be out in, uh, in a month, won't it? What's your name? Uh, Sam. Sam? Hi, Sam. Someone like VW, that's a perfect one. So VW is an awesome example, isn't it? Is VW a good company? Yeah. It's probably a great company, isn't it? So they've got really good products. You say what you want about the emissions, I think they've all been at it. I know VW's taken the rap, but <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure they've all been doing it. Do you think they've got good management? Yeah, well, they've probably had a bit of a clean out. They've probably, a few of them have been telling some porkies, haven't they? Do you think they've got good competitive advantage? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, the brand is very, very strong. I know it's supposed to have been tarnished in recent times, but in the long term, it'll it'll uh, survive all this sort of stuff. The Skoda. People, yeah, people, people have forgotten about how rubbish Skodas are, haven't they? Yeah, they're not rubbish anymore, are they? Who had the last laugh there? Yeah, so. So VW is a, is a great example. Those shares, went, they went down hugely. They went down to about one euro. I think they traded at about one euro 30. And I, I have a, a friend that bought quite a few, and he's done very, very well. So that's a great example of something that was completely de-risked. He kind of went the opposite way. He, he acted in a contrarian way, and he invested when VW was very unloved. What's another kind of stock like that? What's your name? Bill. Bill. Hi, Bill. Yeah. Yeah. Right, well, actually, Tesco's probably my favorite for this sort of stuff. I mean, there was the horse meat stuff. I used to work for the company who did the horse meat stuff. That was where I did my graduate training scheme. That, well, it, I think they had some horse meat. Not, not much. They managed to get out of that one. But, it, again, I suspect quite a few of them were doing it. Yeah, the... Um, the whole kind of Tesco story, it, 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 it's actually had more recent issues, hasn't it? Yeah. Big problems. 
what, 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 what's the kind of issue been for Tesco? Well, definitely competition online. That, that's for sure. What else? Al Aldi, yeah, okay, definitely. Yeah, actually, that's even... Amazon's a, a big, you know, non-food competitor, but Aldi's taken quite a lot of their market share. But what really hit them in a big way and, and kind of really smashes people's confidence in companies like that? The accounting. The accounting. So they had a bit of an Enron moment, didn't they? Yeah, yeah when they, where they've been bullshitting about the accounts. And, you know, basically taking earnings in too early and boosting up the, the profits that, that weren't right. And when that bounces around the market, what do a lot of people do? Yeah? Stop investing? They press the sell button, don't they? Yeah. What does the average investor think? Not necessarily the institutional investor, but, you know, Mrs. Jones who's kind of bought some Tesco shares because she shops there and she comes home and she sees that accounting scandal on the TV. What does she do? She's pressed sell. Oh, I don't, I don't want to be part of that. And that's going to go down and that's a bad business. It doesn't necessarily matter how bad the scandal is or what the impact would be. The news and the kind of negative connotations of that news are enough to depress the share price further below true value. You see that, you know, a lot. What's another example of that? Co-op. Co-op. I bought co-op as well. Yeah, co-op was great. Rob and I had stacks of co-op shares. Remember when Mr. Flowers got caught taking his drugs or what? I don't know what he was doing. He was up to mischief, wasn't he? I can't believe they had him in charge. But, yeah, that was another good one. Yeah. I think, I mean, Tesco's still cheap. I, I, I mean, it's, the PE is still trading on quite a big PE. But if you look at kind of where the share price is now relative to where it has been, even in the last six months, it looks cheap. What's another example of that? Could be. It's just whether you believe that Nokia's, you know, ever going to be revived. Do I believe that Tesco will sort itself out and be a major force on, you know, in retailing? And I'm, I'm sure that I think they've got over a third of the kind of, um, you know, the grocery retailing space. Yeah. Tesco. Tesco have, yeah. They've just got too much, haven't they? They've got too many of these big stores. And I know Aldi's done really well, but they'll penetrate to a, next, to a level, to an extent, once Tesco really find their way and, you know, they start giving the customers exactly what they want again, then I'm sure that, that uh, well, they're growing again anyway. They, they, they've had some reasonable growth the last few. What's your name? Christian. Hi, Christian. Yeah. Well, yeah, possibly. The other issue with Nokia is I, I really don't feel like I understand that business. Um, so for me, it would be something that I wouldn't invest in. That's the first thing. The second thing is the feeling I have about Nokia is I look at their products and I just think, how are they ever going to get back to that kind of position where they have market dominance, people want their products and they're going to be growing again because they've just brought a series of really bland products out that people aren't interested in. So I just can't see how they're going to turn that around. It's a bit like BlackBerry. They're a, they're a similar thing. They're just like an old, like Yahoo. It, they're just dead, aren't they? All right, Yahoo got sold for several billion. But Say that again, sorry? Yeah. 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 And then Jobs came back and fixed it. 
and now he's gone again. And he he's not coming back. No. <laughs> That's like a Frank Bruno moment, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Brown bread. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, yeah, it needs someone like Jobs to to sort them out, doesn't it? Yeah, so there are, there are quite a few examples. The VW, there was, remember Standard Chartered? That was another one. Yeah, may, maybe, maybe a good thing, maybe not. I bought Lloyd's over the years. I quite like Lloyd's. I borrow a lot of money from Lloyd's, so I feel like I have, a, have an insight <laughs> what I need them to do okay. <laughs> Don't want them asking for the money back. I feel like I have an insight into the, their business in some, to some extent. Obviously, there's, there's lots of other areas. And, but you, know, you, you get an idea. That, that was the same thing with co-op. We were borrowing from co-op. And, and then they kind of had their issues. But I remember how they used to deal with us. And I, I got, you get to see the kind of loans that they're making, don't you? You get to see how they're behaving. You get to see what their margins are. You get to see the kind of customers that they're, they're getting. And you know, that's valuable information, isn't it, when you're deciding whether a company has, has got legs or not. I don't know much about I think it's more controlled by a kind of parent, isn't it? So, you know, it's not really a UK bank, is it? Okay, so there's Tesco. Look at that share price. So 2011, they were trading at four pounds. Now, obviously, that was a, it was a very different business then. You know, they had things all around the world. They had their fresh and easy. They, you know, their American thing that didn't do well. They had more assets in, I don't know, South Korea. And so you can't necessarily compare the two, but it has still fallen a hell of a lot. And I would, I would suggest that, you know, you know, when they had their, when did they have their big issue with their accounting stuff? And they were absolutely battered in the press. When was that? Can anyone remember? 2014? Yeah. yeah. So that's probably like that, isn't it? Yeah. This is when people learned what the accounts really said, you know, what, what they were really like, yeah? So they haven't really recovered very much since then, have they? They did a bit here, but they're still trading very, very, you know, in a, a, a relatively depressed way. What brought mon more money out of them? Again, Brexit stuff, yeah? Got a new chief executive now. Uh, he's made a lot of changes. But you know, it's probably quite a good thing. It's just an example of something that is reasonably unloved, where the downside can't be that great and the upside is probably quite high. It's not definitely going to go up. But if you put 10% of what you had or 5% or 3% of what you had in that and another 3% in another one and another 3% in, you know, and you had four of these kind of stocks and then you went and bought some property and you went and bought some you know, wine and you know, whatever else, and you bought all that sort of stuff when the risk to, to the downside was lower and the likelihood that it was going to go up was higher, are you likely to do well over the medium term? Probably are, aren't you? So you, you just need to think about these asset allocations and just piece them into where we are in the cycle. Here's another one. I just bought this one just after, well, a few days after Brexit or, or the Brexit vote. So Barclay Group. So that, that's come back a little bit, but it dropped something like 30%. Why would that be? What is, what do the Barclay do? What, what's Barclay Holdings? What do they do? They build houses. So they build nice houses, or a lot of them are nice houses, yeah. So what happened on the 25th of June to this lot? 
all the builders and all the banks. They all got, they all got slammed, didn't they, 20 30%. That's, um, that's pretty much what always happens when the market thinks there's a recession on the way. Property gets hit hardest, doesn't it? And all the businesses which supply property are exposed to the property market. So, yes, maybe they got further to fall, but companies like this are really well capitalised this time around. Uh, they've been through a, a lot of shit, you know, through the recession, and they've got kind of strong order books. So a lot of people would assume that, you know, these lots of people would sell and assume that they're going to do really, really badly, but often it's overblown. Hi, Hi um, what's your name? James. Hi, James. Yeah. Well, it could be, but they've also got loads of cash, and they've also you know, if you look at lots of their developments, they're not in, you know, if you think of that Nine Elms and you think of the Battersea and, you know, all those other developments that are stalling, they haven't just got stuff like that. They've got stuff out, you know, further out in Surrey and houses and, you know, stuff that is still selling really well. So it's not all kind of prime central, yeah? There's a reasonable mix. So moving on a little bit, if you're just thinking of models for making yourself more wealthy over, over the long term. I'm gonna give you, I'm gonna give you some, some pointers, some ideas, some, some rules to live by when you're kind of going about your, your business or your, your investment strategy. So one of the biggest things, and a lot of people say this, they don't do it, they just kind of go, oh, you five closest people to you or who you become, but I really believe this stuff. The more clever people who are doing what you want to do, that you surround yourself with, the more like them you will become. And the more you are likely to achieve in the areas that you want to do. Certainly in the last 10 years since we started this business, I've, I've followed that principle and it's really worked. You, you become the closest people around you. So, you know, I, I've, I've made learning about these things, learning about investment, learning about different asset classes. I didn't know much about a lot of these asset classes years ago when I started in property, but I've made them my hobby. And I've learned about these things from other people, my friends, who know about them, who do make money out of them, who've been doing them for a long period of time. So you really want to make this stuff part of you, part of your hobby, who you are, and you know, really focus on just making it part of your daily activities. It just needs to become a habit. You need to wear this stuff. You know, and when it's part of your social time and when it's just part of a, you know, your friendship group, this is what they're talking about, it becomes easy. It doesn't feel like work, does it? It's just something that you talk about as, you know, interest or a bit of a hobby. If I'm looking to start a new business or invest or, you know, maybe I'm looking to buy properties or I'm looking to develop commercial buildings or do anything new, that I don't necessarily understand, I will usually follow the rip-off and deploy model. I don't try and reinvent the thing or create something new myself. When I started in this business, that's certainly what I did try and do. Lots of us try and do that, don't we? We, we kind of think, well, the best thing to do would be to be original. We want to have something that we can put our stamp on and want to create it ourselves. And yeah, you can. You can put your kind of flavor on it. You can create a business. You can create an investing strategy and put your kind of flavor or your color to it. But actually, the core principles 
and the way in which that business runs or the way in which you sell that product or the way in which you make those investments, you are best doing it by just copying the best. Don't copy mediocre or, or kind of average people. Copy the people who are making the most out of a business or they've built the business to, you know, it's the most profitable business in the industry or, or, or you know, if you, you, you know, you're buying stocks or you're buying cars. I know a guy locally who buys classic cars. He does really well. He buys the right stuff. He makes money out of them. He trades them. He's someone I've got to know and I'll follow a lot of the principles that, that he's kind of worked out. He's trodden the path over a number of years. Loads of people in property actually want to help. That's kind of a weird thing, isn't it? With some of the stuff, certainly in the city, you know, with shares and other things like that, it can be quite insular. Actually, I find property is a very local business. Property is something which somebody 50, 100 miles away from you can't necessarily compete with you on because they have to be in that area to do it. And that actually offers one of the biggest opportunities for property investors because when you're buying stocks or shares or you're trading on currency or you're trading on commodities, you're often trading against some of the cleverest people in the world. And often they're in a trading center like London. And they got a first at maths or physics and they can compute that stuff in their head 10 times faster than any of us. And they press buttons on a computer screen and you're competing against them buying and selling the same stuff. And it doesn't matter how far away you are. Whereas with property, that doesn't happen, does it? Can those guys buy property in your local area? No. So you're just competing with the, the kind of local market. It's a very local business. And that's the same with a lot of the other physical stuff I was talking about, like the cars or you know, the, maybe the wine's a little bit more centralized. But you know, certainly, a lot of those you know, watches, you buy and sell them. And all you're doing is trading with other more normal people in the market who don't necessarily have more information than you do. So, that's one of the reasons I, I love buying property so much. And all these models of copying the best and learning for other people from other people who know how to do it, the reason lots of those guys will be happy to share with you is because they're in a different area from you. When they live in a different area or they're operating in a different area, they're buying different properties and they're not competing with you. So if they share something with you, they might hope that you'll share something back with them. Do you think it's less likely that I'll hand over all the property investing kind of secrets and, and the, the, the key to the crown jewels for an investor in Peterborough? I might be less forthcoming, forthcoming because they'll be competing on stock with me, yeah? Whereas lots of people in different parts of the country, you know, I help, you know, and, and Robert help, and loads of people help me, and I've got loads of other friends who are dotted around the country. So you certainly want to think about that when you're working out your contrarian investment strategy. You know, finding people who are already doing this stuff, copy the best, rip off and deploy what they're doing, but make sure they're in a, a different area, certainly with property, you know, geographically from you, because they won't feel like you're competing with them. Ready, fire, aim. Who's followed that model before? Ready, fire, aim, yeah. So this is effectively getting going. This is how we get started. This is how we, you know, get that business rolling. Lots of people want to get perfect before they press the button and start the business. Who's kind of got that disease? I've had that disease in a, you know, pretty severe way. I've still got it a bit, but 
Rob's very good at this. You get perfect later. So you just get the thing out there, you get started, you get it rolling. If you've got a gun, you're ready, you fire it, then you aim it. Probably doesn't work with a gun, does it? <laughs> but that's the principle. Because with business, actually you can start something, you can put something out there, you can create a product. Then what do you do as you go along? You change it and you refine it, don't you? You might go and buy a property that isn't great. You might buy a bit of a pup. What's, what's really good about property? Forgiving. It's forgiving. It is forgiving, generally. There's a surveyor there. He values it. The bank won't lend against it unless the income's right. You paid a little bit too much. What's it going to mean in 20 years? Probably not a lot. It's like a bad haircut. It usually grows out, doesn't it? So property, you know, property is the, the ultimate kind of ready, fire, aim business, isn't it? What a, a lots of people do before they buy their first property? They procrastinate, don't they? If you're anything like me, they get a spreadsheet together and they work out every single number and they want to know, you know, how many days void it's going to be over the year, or what the refurb or what the maintenance cost is going to be to the last 50 pounds. They want to know what the insurance is going to be. They want to know how many weeks it's going to be before they get the first tenant. All that stuff. Whereas actually, if they got started, yeah, they need to understand the market. They need to have, you know, they need to do some testing and they need to make sure that they're buying in the right location. But you can do that by talking to the right people. Once they make the mistakes, they've bought the property, they've refurbed it in the wrong way, or they've, they've, they've done certain things wrong with it, what do they do then? Fix it? The, yeah. So they fail forward, don't they? So they just refine and, and, and fix the kind of mistakes. And most businesses like that. So ready, fire, aim is, is definitely something which, which we live by. You need to create some pain and urgency when you're, you're creating this contrarian investing strategy. Why is pain important? Why is urgency important? You can manufacture it, by the way. Why is that important? Makes you take action. What, what do lots of us do as human beings? Procrastinate, yes. We avoid pain, yeah. Say that again, sorry? We don't like pain. Yeah. But often what we do, we, we take the comfortable route, don't we? We take easy street. Does that necessarily help us grow the portfolio or start our business, sorry? You miss the deals. You miss the deals, yeah. What's a good way to create some pain and urgency? Have no money, definitely, yes. <laughs> I wouldn't, suspend, I, I, I wouldn't suggest you go and give it all away to create it. Get out of your comfort zone. You might go to an auction and bid on a property, and you might not have all of the money for completion in six weeks. Or maybe a slightly lower risk option might be going and agreeing a purchase for a property and not having all the money for it. Has anyone done that before? I certainly have. What does that force you to do? Go and find the money. You can be very effective, can't you? Yeah. When, uh, when all of a sudden you've got this, this target and you've got to get this money and you know, become very resourceful, don't you? And you go and find the money. What are the consequences in not finding the money in that situation? You lose the deal, yeah? It's not as bad as auction. You're probably not going to lose a load of money. But there's quite an effective bit of pain there. What would that be? You look like a right prat in front of the agent <laughs> when he finds out you haven't got the money. So that's quite good, isn't it? There's quite a good motivator there, isn't there? 
I'm not going to look like a buffoon in front of the estate agent and let him tell everybody. So every now and again, it's not a bad thing to put yourself in those positions, to push yourself forward to get to that next level. It might be presenting. You know, I used to hate standing on stage. I, I was so scared of it. And Rob got me on stage and he just kept asking me questions and just kept saying, oh, just read those slides out. And, you know, it was very painful, but I, I just kept doing it and just pushing through that. And, you know, once you've done that a few times with a, a few different parts of your business, that's when you grow. That's when you, you develop new skills and, you know, you, you effectively get yourself into a, a painful position, but then you get the results, the massive results, shortly afterwards. So you can get addicted to that, can't you? So that urgency is really, really important. What else might you want to be doing with your spare cash? It's good to keep some back. Why is it not good to keep loads back? Eats away, inflation, all that sort of stuff. But in addition, if you keep a big cash pile, what's it going to create? Yeah, comfort, maybe some complacency. What have I tried to do over the years? Every, every time I've got some money back from a, a deal, I've tried to go and pile it into the next deal. I've tried to go and find new stuff and keep it moving. And that keeps me kind of, it creates urgency. And you know, I, I haven't always got that much money in my bank. I, at the moment I have, because I haven't, haven't put it to as good a use as maybe I should have done the last few months, because I've had a hell of a lot of stuff on. And I haven't found as many deals, actually. Certainly when, when, property, when I feel like properties are enough money, and I feel like I can't get them for the right price, I do sit on my hands. And there are periods that you should do that. You know, you'll know if you've been in a market long enough and you really understand the prices and you really understand all the yields, you'll know when things are getting too toppy. The pain and urgency often is what creates the, the massive results. You need to find your model. Everyone has this different model that works with them. Lots of people say, oh, this is the best model in the whole world. There is no better investing strategy. Well, that's baloney, isn't it? Because what matters is the best model for you, the best model for your personality type, your skills, the best model for, for what, sorry? Your for your goals. Yeah, absolutely, that's true. You might not want that much income. You might just want capital growth. I don't suggest you only focus on capital growth because it can get you into trouble. But some people are of that mindset. They just want this retirement pot and they don't want the income now. Some people want more income now. Some people like buying and selling. Why would that be? Why do they prefer trading properties and flipping them? They get excited by it. They might be more of a trader kind of mentality. You know, if you do your disc profile, I'm not a trader, you know, that, that's totally not where I am on the quadrant. I like accumulating and just getting more of. Uh, I don't really like, I'm not, I'm not a big seller of stuff. I, I will sell assets if I think you know, the, you know, it's reached kind of a, a peak or whatever, but often I like keeping it and just, just creating more income and then putting debt against it and then paying the debt down with income. But if you find your model and if, you know, as you try different models over the years, you will end up you know, settling on something and you know, working out what works best for you. If you find your best model, you're going to be the most successful following a model that works with your personality type because you'll enjoy it. It'll just become part of you. You'll get up and you'll kind of think, oh, I'm going to do this or, 
you know, I'm going to do what I love every day. I'm going to buy more houses and I'm going to keep them and I'm going to take income or I'm going to trade them and I'm, you know, going to be somebody who kind of tarts and turns and spruces properties up. Or maybe, you know, I end up kind of buying stocks because I enjoy, I'm a bit of a mathematician and, you know, I enjoy looking at all those tables and those charts. So you need to do, A, what you're really good at in terms of your, per and that will be led by your personality type. But at the root of it, you need to do what you enjoy the most because you will inherently be led to spend more time on that. You will inherently want to learn more about doing that thing and therefore you will become better at it. So you need to, you need to do what fits with you and what you love. Then when you've got this model and you know what it is you want to do, you need to have these really clear, definable, achievable goals. Why are the goals important? Say that again. You know what you're working towards, yes. Motivation. When you hit a goal, what do you feel like? Pretty good. Yeah. What's your name, Bill? Yeah. So what should you do with those goals? So you've got this kind of big goal. I want 20 properties. What do you do then? You need to break it down. Break it down into what? So time scale, but what would it be? So these bite-sized chunks might say what? How to? So I need to view 20 properties per week. Number two, I need to go and meet three new agents every month. I need to take four agents to lunch every month. So you, you put it into these kind of smaller chunks. You make them very specific. And then at the end of each day, you work out how many of those goals you've hit, and then for the next day, you set new goals, or you might set them for the next week. And you'll find over a period of time, if you track it like that, you know as you hit kind of smaller goals, it won't, you won't really get that euphoric feeling. But as you look back over a week or a month or three months or six months, you'll find that you've moved a long way if you track it. That's where you'll get the most excitement, or that's where I get the, I get the most excitement. You know, for me, one of... My biggest goals is kind of financial, so it would be income and capital. So I have a kind of KPI that I'll do every month and I'll work out exactly where I am. You know, month to month, it doesn't feel like a massive change, but if I look back one year, two year, you know, five years, obviously that, that's grown significantly and that shows you that you're on the right path and you, you're setting the right goals. They need to be achievable though, because if they're just massive and there's there aren't those baby steps kind of put into the process, then you just feel like, oh God, that goal's too big, I'm not gonna get there. You know, that's too much like hard work. Focus is really important. Who's kind of had that thought that, you know, I wanna do this, I wanna do that, I wanna be stock trading, I wanna be buying properties, I wanna be trading foreign currency, I know all about gold, I like drinking wine, uh, and I like driving cars. Oh, and I want to do some serviced accommodation, some HMOs and rent-to-rents in, you know, in the Caribbean. Who's kind of had those thoughts? Yeah, I, I, did. I used to do stuff like that. I used to buy houses all over the place. I bought stuff in Eastern Europe and in Florida and, you know, all over the shop. And most of it didn't work until I, I really focused on a couple of strategies. And I got very good at one or two things. When you go deeper, you become really good and you go really, really deep, 
you get much better results than when you go wide. You know, if you become kind of okay at lots of things, what do you end up achieving? Yeah, okay, and yeah. Average. Whereas if you become amazing at a couple of things, do you end up achieving more? Way more. What's your name? Sorry? Bill. Bill. Another Bill. Yeah, you can relate that to your own personal competitive advantage. That's very, very true. You will become better at buying properties of a certain type of a, you know, a certain, you know, a, a three-bed terrace in Wakefield, you know, across these streets, you know, and you'll know which agents supply those and, you know, which, which sellers are the best ones to buy them from and you'll learn that the repos are too much money and you'll know the best letting agents. Your competitive advantage versus all the other investors will become greater if you focus on one or two investment categories or, or one or two things. Specializing is, you know, it's, it's the key to business, isn't it? It's the key to, you know, if, if you've got a Model T Ford and it goes down the production line, what does the factory worker do? Does he put the wing mirror on and the engine in and the door on and kind of move around the production line through the day? No, he probably, most of the time, just puts the wing mirror on time and time again because he gets very, very good at putting that wing mirror on quickly, accurately, and, and knows that job better than anyone else in the factory. Bill, question. Well, um, I'm telling you, Sam, I would sort of narrow down once you get the few. Yeah. So how, how do you narrow down on a few if you've tried the majority? So if you haven't, yeah. So, so Rob has this kind of, Rob has this 70, 20, 10, where you spend 70% of your time doing the thing. And at the moment, you think it's the thing. Then you spend 20% of your time doing something else. And then you just have one eye on another strategy. And that's 10% of your time. So you, you're doing three things. You're really only spending most of your time on two. And actually, one of them is really your main focus. And on your 10 and maybe your 20, there are new things that are coming in. So to get from the 10 to the 20, it needs to have proven itself and show you that it's working. And then to get from the 20 to the 70, it really needs to prove to you that the strategy is good. So you might say to yourself, well, I like doing HMO, so that's my 70. And I'm going to do service accommodation, which is my 20. And then my 10 might be commercial conversions. Yeah? And I couldn't tell you which one of those is the best one, because it's the best one for you and your personality and what you enjoy doing. And you may end up, like me, just going, actually, my 70 is commercial conversions. And I'll kind of mold that with HMOs. Yeah? Exercise and food. That was a massive one for me. One of the big things that helped me become a contrarian investor was just getting up every morning and exercising. I used to think that exercise was kind of something which was beneficial you know, for your body and wasn't really connected to your mind. But actually, 10 years ago when I started to exercise most mornings, my performance in terms of you know, what I was achieving during my day and the way my mind was working improved exponentially. I usually always do it in the morning. You know, if I kind of eat, you know, the right food and fruit and all that sort of stuff through the day, I have much higher energy levels and I, I can usually get a hell of a lot more done. 
I can focus better, I can work things out quicker, have better conversations with agents or banks or you know, I'll analyze things better. So I do, I do think actually exercising food will make you quite a lot of money and will help you develop a better business. Uh, I think they're intrinsically linked to your success. It took me a while to work that one out, but um, that's perhaps a contrarian thought, certainly when you look at someone like Philip Green. <laughs> My name is Darius. Hi, Darius. Hi, Darius. Um, so I started running uh, three or four days a week, and I did that right up until last summer when I went running every day for about three weeks, and I did something to my foot, and I'm still trying to get it fixed. So I go to the gym a lot now. Um, I go spinning and uh, circuit training. Question? Best swimming. Swimming? Yeah. yeah I've, I just find it, I can't get my heart rate up enough for swimming. But at some point, I'll learn how to do that, and then I will do it, yeah. I just have to get my heart rate up high enough, and then my, it clears my head, yeah. Okay, so securing the model is the next stage. Once you've found this model, you know, your 10, 70, 20, 10, when you've got your 10 and you're testing it, you need to go from a period of testing to then measuring, refining, and then systemizing. This is a really important process and something that I do frequently when I'm developing something new. When you start a new property or business model, especially with property, it often doesn't show its face properly for three to six months. Why is that? You learning it? Yeah, understanding it? With property specifically, it takes a while to transact, then you've got to refurb it, then you've got to rent it out and you don't get to see what the tenant demand is and you don't get to see all the facets of the investment until you go right through it, right to the end, do you? So it's quite important to do the testing. So I started a new HMO model a few years ago where I was renting really high-end high rooms out with en-suites and we, for me, I found it really unbelievable that I could get much higher rents than for normal HMOs. There were lots of people telling me that you know, I knew a local kind of HMO in Peterborough would rent at about 300, 325 per room. And when I worked out this kind of high-end HMO model, people were telling me that I'd get rents of 450, 475 for a room. You know, with a single let, you know, when you're renting a house out, do you get those variations across the same kind of house? One that's nicely refurbed versus one that isn't? Not really. You, you know, if... Yeah, if you get a, a three-bed house, you know, in, in Peterborough and you've, you've got two houses on the same street, you've got a really nice one inside and a really grotty one, what's the difference in the rent per month? 50 quid maximum, maybe 25? They don't move that much. Whereas with a room, it's somehow it's more like a hotel room. It, 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 hotel rooms can be quite different, can't they? You know, if you stay in a travel lodge, it might be 45 quid. Whereas if you go and stay... I don't know, somewhere, somewhere nice you know, in town here at the Bull Hotel, it might be 150 a night, it's three times, isn't it? And that's what happens, HMOs are somewhere in between. I found that really hard to get my head around. So the way I got comfortable around that was by testing and measuring. And that's what I'll normally do when I start a new model. I'll test and measure first. So for me, that was putting loads of adverts up on Spare Room and on Easy Roommate and all those kind of websites which have HMO tenants on there 
and then I'd test all the results and you know write them on a spreadsheet, analyze them, and over a period of time then I'd know whether the investment was likely to work or not. And then once I decided that there were enough tenants and there did seem like there was enough demand, then I started to, I decided that I was going to buy my first house and refurb it according to this model and then go through the whole process, you know, do it for six months or, or however long, six, nine months, get all the numbers, get all the data before I went into that model really heavy style. So that was my kind of 10 out of the 70, 20, 10. And once I worked out that that worked, then I moved on to the next stage. So the next stage would be to do a bigger one. And then quite quickly after that, then I was doing a pub and I was doing 18 rooms. And then it moved from 10 to my 20. And then it's probably moved into somewhere between my 70 and my 20 now. Because obviously this business is my 70. But you know, if you think of my property stuff or, or mine and Rob's property stuff, I probably have developing commercial buildings into these kind of rooms and, and apartments probably at, at my 20. And I'll only do those bigger offices and pubs and, and those kind of developments now. I won't really do houses anymore because I don't feel like it's a good use of time for me, just for me personally. But you know, the, the, the way I've got to that is through testing and measuring the small stuff and then working it through into you know, a, a model whereby I'm spending more and more time on the stuff that works because I've tested and measured it. What's the worst thing you can do with, with property? What did I do when I started? Sorry? Not taking action. Yeah, not taking action. What else? Scatterguns, a very bad idea. That's where you kind of buy all over the place and kind of buy loads of different things and go very wide and don't really understand that much about it. The other thing that I did was buying stuff which looked exciting, looked good, you know, everyone was saying it was good and I was reading it was really good. Instead of just buying one and testing and measuring, I'd go and buy three. I'd go, oh, I've got three of these villas in Florida and, you know, they're brilliant and I'm going to make millions. And I'd not even got the, the kind of data from, from one of them. Uh, what, what happens when, you're, when you've got a model that doesn't really work and you buy more of it? It just multiplies your losses, doesn't it? It multiplies the mistakes. You don't learn the mistakes for the first three to six months. So you want to go through all the mistakes and learn them all on one, so that when you do number two, you find a lot of those mistakes out. Now, lots of things don't take three to six months. Lots of businesses are developed a lot earlier than that. And you can get going you know, b before that period. But um, yeah, that's, that's certainly how I've followed my model. Have we got the next speaker nearly ready? Just one Two minutes. Good. How's everyone feeling? Good. I guess it must be nearly 10 o'clock. It is nearly 10 o'clock. Wow. It's getting quite late, isn't it? Was anyone here last year? Mm. Some diehards. You were here last year. You'll remember when I nearly fell asleep standing up on stage. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think that was possible, but I really did. So once you've refined this system and you know, you've, you've tested it, you've measured it, you've refined it, you've ironed it all out, you've got rid of all the mistakes, or most of the mistakes, you then put it into a system. What is a system? It's a what? A CRM. So you might have a computer system, contact management system, 
Lots of people just have our one to a hundred list. They might use a what, sorry? A set of interconnected processes that lead to a desired result. Sorry, I can't remember all that, so I had to kind of keep. So, yeah, that's another way of explaining it. Yeah, for me, I often just go 1 to 50, 1 to 100, put it all into a system. Why is a system good when you develop this stuff? It's scalable, so you can give it to other people. Why else is it good? Replicable, yeah. People go away, people go on holiday, people leave. What else is it good for? Reference, Reference yeah. Do you forget how to do some stuff? Yeah, definitely. I do all the time. My memory's quite bad. Modify it, yeah. Yeah. You can what, sorry? Yeah, you can record results. Spreadsheets can be very good for that. Yeah, absolutely. You can monetize it. What, you could sell the system? What, like a franchise? You could do that. McDonald's, Subway, they're quite good examples of that. Yeah, it's, uh, it becomes saleable. Yeah, absolutely. So systemizing it is absolutely the right thing to do once you've got your, your model fully tested, measured, refined. Then you want to put it into a system. It will make it more efficient. You'll spend less time doing it. You'll, you'll find out the best way to do it because you can work out that from your system. And then you just rinse and repeat and probably get someone else to do it. You delegate it away to someone else to do it. And then you focus on making the model better or creating another model or another business. And that's how you scale and you make lots of money. You have lots of people doing lots of stuff for you that you control. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the first part of my presentation. Yes. Thanks for listening, hope to meet you surely and goodbye.